Are you enjoying our service today? I hope you are. I'm really enjoying the music. Amazing the team that we have, just good stuff. We're in a series called Recalibrate, and this is week three. And we've talked about God's moral will and God's sovereign will. And today we're talking about God's will for our lives and how we make decisions. And we all have to make decisions, right? And the question is, you know, how do we do that? Uh, yesterday, I, I just got back from Indiana where I had, Pam and I had gone over uh, and our youngest daughter, Carissa, had her first child. And uh, so we were pumped about that Friday night. And, uh, and then as of yesterday, this child didn't have a name. You know, decisions, right? But now I am Calvin and Carissa. Spriggs are, are excited and blessed to announce to you the birth of their daughter, Charlotte Ann Spriggs. So we're, we're really pumped about that and have been blessed and, and cool stuff. Sometimes we have to make a decision. Now, Zach, he's of the, of the mindset that he shouldn't have to name his child before he leaves the hospital, and he sort of tries to rebel against that. But I'm like, hey, give it up. You gotta name this kid sometime. Just go for it, make it happen, make the road smoother. And uh, we all make decisions. And sometimes the stakes are high because we know we can make bad decisions. And bad decisions always lead to regrets. And that's what we're trying to avoid in our life. But we've all done it. I mean, money that we wish we hadn't spent or deals that we wish we would have been a part of or marriages or dates or missed opportunities, whatever it is, We've all seen decisions go bad and sort of watch that play out. Some of you know that uh, a week or so ago, I just, I came back from a hunting trip in Colorado. We were bow hunting for elk and I, and I watched a bad decision play out. And, and so here's how that went. You ready for story time? All right, so a little story time. So, so we go and... Uh, at first, we tried to get to New Mexico, and John Wookie and I, who's a great elk hunter, and I'm not, and uh, we were going to do that, and, and that didn't work out. But then there are four local guys, young guys in their 30s, that were going on a trip, and their leader, who had elk hunt, he couldn't go. And so these guys, Tommy, Corey, uh, Kevin, and Tyler, uh, they went, and, and we kind of got connected with them, and, and so John went, John asked me to go, so there were six of us. We drive straight throughout to Colorado and we start hunting in a place near Meeker, Colorado. And where we were hunting was kind of locked in. Maybe I'll talk more about that some other time. But uh, while we're up there, we're hunting. And this is active hunting. These guys, these four guys, they all kill deer all the time. They are expert bow hunters killing deer meat all the time and eating it. They're into it. But they had never elk hunted before. And so we got out there and elk hunting, it's sort of you get up, while it's still dark, you go out to where you think there are elk or maybe you discovered the day before that there are elk and then you start calling and tracking and hunting and trying to find them and call them in and you do this all day until it turns night and then you come back. Sometimes you come back for lunch, but you know, I just like to stay out there. But anyway, so that's just kind of how it went. Well, 
while we were out there, and I was mostly with John, we were in different parties. Sometimes I hunted alone or with John or with one other guy. John, uh, this is Dr. John Wookie, uh, who's a great elk hunter. He saw some berries. And so he grabbed some, and they looked like they were from a blueberry bush, and it, but they were white. And he grabbed some, and he ate them. And he said they were delicious. But anyway, fast forward to the next day, John's not feeling so well. And all of a sudden, John has the runs. And I mean, just all the time, the runs. And then not only that, we're out hunting, and I realize John has got the, sh the shakes. He's shaking. He's shivering. So we come back from the hunt, uh, get in the tent, and, uh, and, there, and there's a kind of a portable wood stove, cast iron stove that you can move around. And I have that in there, and I started shoving that full of wood and heating up the tent. And then all night long, or at least at the beginning of the night when I was watching him, he was just shaking, laying in his cot, shaking. He said he didn't feel that bad, but he looked terrible, you know. He's shaking. And, uh, and he got up the next day, laid off one morning's hunt. He's a tough guy. Re remember, this is the only guy I know that has been attacked by a grizzly bear in Wyoming and lived to tell about it. So he's tough. But, uh, but then we went back to, after he laid off a morning, we went back to hunting. But he still had the runs. I mean, he had the loose deuce. I mean, it was just kept <laughs> happening, you know, and just all during our hunting. And so... You know, there I watched a one bad decision, right? To eat those berries. And I watched that play out for days and play out and out and out and out and out. I mean, it played out a lot. I mean, it played out like every 30 minutes or so. But anyway, so that's, that's an example of a decision gone bad. You know, we make a decision and then when it's a bad decision, we reap the consequences of that. And as we look at our lives today, you know, we can look back and realize that where we are right now is basically a sum total of all the decisions that we have made in life that led us up to this point. Decisions about family and who you should marry and should you have kids and how many and where to work or should you take that other job and, uh, or should you move in with him and just all this stuff. And basically we realize that we're the sum total of the decisions that we've made. And we realize also that we make decisions every day. And so the question is, how do you make decisions? How should we as believers make decisions, every decision? And we all have a way. And the question is, how do you do it? Do you just, are most of your decisions basically just gut feeling? Or you're rolling the dice for a seven, you know, rock, scissors, what is that, paper, you know, is that, is that the way you're doing it? How are you figuring out what to do, flipping a coin? Or I think what a lot of people do is they sort of just drift along and try not to make decisions and kind of see where they end up. But, but please understand, not making a decision in many circumstances is making a decision. It's just doing it passively. Still, it, hey, I didn't do this. I didn't, well, I didn't decide to do any of this stuff. Well, those are decisions that you didn't do. I mean, you decided not to do them. And so decisions are forced on us. 
And, and what are you, how are you doing that? Just what feels right? Are, are you casting chicken bones? I mean, what are you doing that, that causes you to make a decision? Well, now some of you already know a secret and it's actually been around since the 1950s. How many of you have ever seen one of these? The magic eight ball. So the magic eight ball, the whole point of the magic eight ball is you don't have to make a decision. You've got the magic eight ball. Come on, people. You've got it. How many have seen these before? Wow. There's a lot less people making decisions than I thought. Yeah, there's a lot of magic eight balls. So you know how this works is there's kind of a, a little window here and you ask the ball a question and then you shake it up. You know, should I look for that new job? Reply hazy, try again. All right. All right, so, it's, you know, all right, there's actually 20 different answers. Question, should I call her now and ask her for a date? This is not for me, I'm married. This is for you guys. Should I call right now and just ask her for a date? Concentrate and ask again. <laughs> All right, so this is one we know. Should I eat the white berries? <laughs> Outlook, not so good. Should I find a better source for answers? Signs point to yes. You know, whatever it is, you can ask the question and you can live your whole life by the magic eight ball and a lot of answers are yes, some are maybe, and some are no. But what's guiding your decisions? Because bad decisions lead to regrets. We need to have a plan. And of course the Bible speaks to this. Uh, first of all, I want us to look at Ephesians 5. Paul's writing the Ephesians. He's telling them how, how Christians should live in a pagan world. So this applies to us, how Christians should live in a pagan world. Here's what he says beginning in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk. That means how you live. Not as unwise men, but as wise. That's men and the generic. Not as unwise people, but as wise people. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wow, he's saying a lot. Okay, hey, Christians, how to live in a pagan world? He's saying, first of all, be careful how you live. He's telling us, don't just drift through life. Be careful, think about it. Put some thought into how you do marriage, how you raise kids, how you handle work, relationships, all that stuff. Think about it, be careful. And not as unwise but wise, and, and when we talk about wisdom, and sometimes we mention this, wisdom is more than just an accumulation of knowledge. Because we can know a lot of things. For example, people can know a lot of things about the Bible, but not apply it to their lives. So really wisdom, the biblical definition of wisdom, is knowing what is fearing the Lord and knowing what God says, 
But then wisdom is actually applying it to our lives. Not as unwise, but as wise. It's applying the truth that we know. Well, I don't know everything about the Bible. Well, apply the truth from the Bible that you know. And apply that to making decisions. And then he says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The, the, that days of evil, he said, hey, make the most of every opportunity, make the most of the time you have because the days are evil, he's saying, because our culture, the world we're living in is evil and it does not point us to the right way. Don't follow culture for decisions. If you do, it will lead to regrets in your life. God is telling us how to make decisions so we will not have regrets in our life. And then Paul punctuates this whole thing. He says, so then don't be foolish. He's saying, make good decisions. And then he goes on to say, but understand. And, and we says, hey, but understand. In classic Hebraic thought, this is not just understand what's being said. This is understand what's being said so you can act on it. But understand, understand it and act on it. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And now a lot of times we already know what God wants. We just don't want to do it. And when we go the other way, it will lead to regret every single time. And so then he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this will of the Lord or will of God is used three different ways in scripture. We've already talked about two of them. One is the moral will of God. The moral will of God, as Luke told us two weeks ago, is what God says in his word. What he says we should do, what we shouldn't do, this is God's moral will. This is God's right and wrong. This is God's do and don'ts for our life. And so we, we should read the word, pay attention to the word, and make decisions by the word, applying it to our life. And, and why? Why does God tell us all this? It's really for our benefit. It's really for us so that we won't live with regrets and then there's also the sovereign will of God, which is what Tim talked about last Sunday. And that's just acknowledging this, that God is supreme and he has a sovereign will that encompasses everything and that his sovereign will will happen. For example, scripture teaches us that the heart of the king is in God's hands and he sort of channels it like water. Well, the point is, does that mean that the king rulers always make right decisions? No. Sometimes they make wrong decisions. Sometimes they make evil decisions. But God in his sovereign will will take whatever happens and turn that into the outcomes that he has ordained. So what God says is gonna happen is going to happen no matter what we do, and no matter if we are obedient to him or not, that's God's sovereign will, not dependent on our obedience. 
But neither one of those, when he says understand what the will of God is, he's not talking about the sovereign will of God. He's kind of talking about the moral will of God. Mainly he's talking about God's will for our lives. He says, understand how we should live. Understand how you should make decisions. Understand what decisions you should make. That's what he's talking to us about. And when it comes to God's will for our personal life, when, when we're saying, God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? How can I do this? The first thing is, God wants us to be saved. And, and we might say, well, we hear that term a lot, saved from what? God created us. God created the universe, everything in it, that includes us. God created us in God's image with a choice to make decisions, to follow him or not. All of us as human beings have used that freedom to make decisions, to rebel against God and do wrong things. Now what makes that so serious is God is not only creator, but he's also perfectly moral and perfectly just. And because of that, God has to punish wrong. And we've all done wrong. But God also loves us. And in that, he allowed his son to come to earth to live a perfect life, the only one who walked the planet with no sin. And then he, as God-man, voluntarily lay down his life, laid down his life to pay for our sin. And we get that credited to our account when we put our faith or our trust in Christ alone, realizing that there's nothing we can do to earn heaven or a right relationship with God. Christ has done it for us. All we have to do is admit it, our sin, admit our sin, humble ourselves, and put our trust in Christ alone. That's how we are saved. And that's the first thing that God wants for us. For example, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, that's men in the generic. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the number one thing that God wants you to do. So here's what I'm saying. If you're here and you're not a believer, and, and in every crowd like this, there's gonna be people who are not believers. If you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God because you haven't really admitted your sin, admitted that really God is your authority and put your trust in Christ as, and receive salvation from your just penalty for your wrongs, if you haven't done that, if you haven't received that gift that you receive through faith or trusting in Jesus, then that's all you need to know. Stop right there. This is the main thing that God wants for you. Don't go any further. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. Every other decision that you'll ever make in your life pales into, into comparison with what you do with Jesus. So stop right there. That's it. Now, if you're a believer and you've made that most important decision 
to fall on the mercy of God, realizing that we can't earn our salvation, that it's a gift that Christ has earned for us, and we put our trust in him alone, and, and realize we're not bringing anything else to the table. There's nothing else going into the, the recipe here. It's all Jesus, and there's nothing good we can do to earn salvation. That's the whole message of the Bible is that. And every other religion is the opposite of that. So once you've come to Christ, now as a Christian, how do you make decisions? Well, the way I teach this is it's four steps, and I, and I have an acronym for it. It's called GRID, G-R-I-D. You run every decision through the grid. Does that make sense? Four things. Thing number one, God's word. First, go to God's word. If there's a decision, the first thing we do is, has God talked about this? Has God already told me what to do? Because if God's already told me what to do, then I already know what the decision should be, right? So we go to God's word. That's number one. Go to God's word. That's a lot like what Luke was talking about two weeks ago. In order to know what God says, we have to know his word. And so that's, that's the very first thing. So you want to know the basics of parenting? Go to God's word. You want to know how to do marriage? Go to God's word. You want to know how to fix relationships? Go to God's word. You want to know how to treat your body? Go to God's word. You want to know how to deal with anger, anxiety, fear, guilt, all that stuff? Go to God's word. All those things are answered for us in black and white in God's word. And then there are other things, for example, from God's word. Should I move in with my boyfriend? Don't even need to ask God that question. Because God's word already says, no, don't do that. So go to God's word first. And anytime we stray from that, it never leads to a better life. Never. So, you know, and I know we get into the weeds on this stuff. Well, well, what about my marriage? You know, it's difficult. It, it's, it's not working out. What about my marriage? Well, husband, love your wife self-sacrificially. Yeah, well, I'm doing that. You know, how far do I go? Like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how far. Wife, what do I do? Submit to your husband. I know that in our culture, that's like, whoa. Not as a second-class citizen, as you, we have to have some order in organizations and relationships. Yield to his leadership. Just yield. Well, I, I've done that, but when do I stop? How far do I go? Submit him as to the Lord. Just keep doing that. He's already told us. We don't need to ask the question, hey, well, what about my job? Well, first of all, work hard. Scripture says that. And Scripture also tells us how to treat our boss. It also tells bosses how to treat employees. All that's covered in black and white in God's word. And, and here's where we get hung up. Yeah, but this other person or my boss or my employee or my husband or my wife, they're not, do, don't worry about what they're doing. 
You need to know what you need to do. You do you and follow God and let God take care of the rest, all right? So first, go to God's word. That's the G, all right, in the grid. Go to God's word. And if it's addressed in scripture, guess what? You're done. You're done. Oh, this is what it says. Stop looking. Stop looking for alternatives. No, you're done. It's, it's what the Bible says. But what if it's not in God's word? How do I make a decision when it's not in black and white? Okay? Grid. Go to God's word. That next is R. R is remember God's principles as guided by the spirit. Now, this is a little tricky. This is, we not only have black and white in God's word, but we also have principles from God's word that aren't as clearly spelled out, but we see that all through God's word. And then we should seek to be, gui to, to be guided by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, if, if we're a believer, to help us with that. So as, but, so let me try to illustrate, because this could be a little, a little unusual, so hang with me. I'll try to illustrate it. As Christians, here's how it plays out typically. Sometimes it's not covered in black and white, but we know a lot about what Jesus said and what the Bible says, and we'll get to a decision, and a lot of times it's a decision we want to make, but then we feel this tension. We feel like maybe this doesn't seem right. What's going on there? It's not specifically talked about in the Bible. So why am I feeling this tension? There's actually a story in the Bible that completely illustrates this. So you ready for another story, a Bible story? All right, about a 10th of you are ready for a Bible story. So the rest, try to get in the zone. All right, the Bible. This is in the life of David. And some of you will remember this. So I'm just, so remember, David's a young shepherd boy, right? And then one day, this prophet shows up in David's house, his dad's house, and says, hey, one of your sons I need to talk to. And it turns out to be the youngest son, David. And basically, the prophet says, hey, David is going to be the future king of Israel. All right, so that's a pretty good day, right, for Jesse's house. I mean, he shows up, and this guy says, hey, one of your sons is going to be king. That's good news. The problem is Israel already has a king, the first king, which was Saul. But Saul wasn't really following God like Saul should follow God. And so this all kind of happens in secret. So as time goes on uh, later, David has an encounter. Even though he's not a part of the army like his older brothers are, he has this encounter in front of the entire army with Goliath, right? We've all heard this story. He has an encounter with Goliath. He defeats Goliath. And all of a sudden, David becomes a hero in the nation of Israel. The whole Israelite army saw David do this. And now all of a sudden, David has become even more popular than King Saul. So Saul is jealous of David and he tries to kill David. And so David, you know, is, is kind of, he, he becomes part of the army, but now he's kind of dodging, dodging Saul. 
And then by the time David leaves Saul's service in the army that he joined after killing Goliath, by the time that happens, he, he's like a hero. He's a fugitive hero. And then other men start flocking to David. And pretty soon, David has a small army. But they're a fugitive army of nomads without a home. And so Saul's still trying to locate David and kill him. And then Saul finally gets some good intel and he realizes that David is on the western shore of the Dead Sea in a little valley called En Gedi. And so David, uh, Saul rounds up a, an army of about 3,000 men, a big army, way bigger than David's, to go there and kill David. In the meantime, David has got some good intel too and he knows that Saul's army is coming. So they're in these barren hills like Masada, like, you know, that's west of the Dead Sea. It's just desert hills, rocks, caverns, you know, ravines, that's all. And David tells his army, just melt into the, the countryside. Just melt into the wilderness. We're gonna wait for Saul's army to pass through and then we'll get back together. So they decide to do that. And it's all working out perfectly. As a matter of fact, David, as the army disperses before Saul gets there, David and a few of his key guys hide in a cave in En Gedi, which, which is one of these ravines that lead to the Dead Sea, but this one has a little trickle of water in it. But anyway, he's there in a cave. As Saul's army comes, now this is where, if you remember the story, the story takes kind of a serendipitous twist, you know, kind of a sovereign twist. As King Saul's leading his army and he's at En Gedi, he decides he needs to relieve himself. He had a few white berries on the road and he's got to take care of business. And so he does that. He wants some privacy. And so he walks into the very cave that David and a few of his key men are hiding. So as they shrink further back into the darkness of the cave, Saul walks in. Imagine this from David's perspective. Here the guy that's been trying to kill him, and so they've been kind of at war with each other. God has said that David's gonna be the next king. And now here comes walking into the cave. And remember now, Saul's like blinded by the bright desert sunlight. And so he's walking into a dark cave. He can't see anything. David and his men have retreated back in there. But David sees Saul's silhouette coming into the cave without any men. And then he starts relieving himself, answering nature's call. And David's men are, whoa, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is how God is gonna make this happen. We see it in 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse four. Here's what it says. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give you your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. We see it. All you have to do, David, kill Saul and then you're the king. Bada boom, bada bing. We don't have to be outcasts anymore. We don't have to keep hiding. But in the cave, 
David feels attention. Attention sort of in his heart, in his spirit, if you will. And so it's like he's struggling. Okay, yeah, this seems right. And God did say I'm the next king and God, you know, and we all know Saul's not really following God. So this is the natural order of things. And so he sneaks up to Saul in the darkness with knife in hand. And then as he's sneaking up to Saul, I think what's happening in David's heart is he's just thinking, this doesn't exactly feel right. I mean, we kill each other in battle man to man. We face each other. And I always thought that's kind of how this would happen. But this seems less like battle and a little more like murder. And actually murder is against what God says. You know, so he's like, this doesn't feel exactly right. Even though he's my enemy, even though it seems like this is what God's gonna do, even though my men are all waiting, this seems like the logical next step. And seconds before David kills Saul, he changes his mind and he takes his knife and he cuts off the corner of Saul's royal robe while Saul's taking care of business. And then after that, Saul leaves the cave. And uh, he, he leaves the cave and kind of goes on his way. And then David and, and Saul's army's out there waiting for him. And when Saul gets out, David comes out of the cave. And David calls out to Saul and basically says, hey, God delivered you into my hand. I could have killed you, but I spared your life and I just cut off a corner of your robe to prove it. And he holds up the corner of the robe. And of course, Saul, who's probably mounted, remounted his mule by then, you know, looks at his cape and, whoa, it's true. He could have killed me. And so Saul then Sort of has a change of heart. He calls David a son. And this happened several times. You know, Saul's kind of bouncing back and forth all the time. You know, and he, he says, hey, you're right. You could have killed me. I admit it. And now I know that someday you're going to be the next king of Israel. And so David ends his speech this way in Samuel 24, 12. Well, let, let me pick it up here in Samuel 24, 5. 24, the rest of four. David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And verse five. And it came about after David's, that came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Here's David's conscience bothering him because he just cut the robe, not let alone kill him. And it continues. So he said to his men, far be Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So he's calling Saul, little Lord, and God, big Lord, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up, rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So then David comes out, gives a speech, and then David wraps the speech up with this in verse 12. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And so Saul says, hey, you're right. He ends up leaving. But here's, here's the thing. 
David needed to pay attention to the principles, not just the, the written word, but the principles of God's word and how that was interacting with his spirit to, that created attention that he didn't just ignore, he listened to. So here's the deal. If you feel the tension, pay attention to the tension. If you feel the tension, listen to the tension. And then, by the way, the rest of the story is later, Saul's doing battle with the Philistines, kind of a random arrow is shot. It finds a seam in Saul's armor. It mortally wounds him. He goes off to the side of the battle. He realizes he's gonna die. The enemy's closing in. He doesn't wanna die at the hands of the enemy, so he falls on his own sword. And so David becomes king without murdering Saul. Now, it would have been nice if God would have showed up in the cave and told David, David, relax, don't do anything, it's gonna be okay. As a matter of fact, seven chapters later, Saul's gonna die by the Philistines, so you don't have to kill him, you're gonna be king, that's how it's all gonna work out. But that's not how life is, is it? No, we have to decide. So that's what's going on. Uh, so, God's word, if it's there in black and white, we're done. Then remember biblical principles. Remember the principles of God's word as guided by the spirit, that's our. And then after you've done that, maybe there's nothing there because you can't think of a principle that really applies and you don't feel this tension in your heart. Then the next one is I, and I is just asking the question, is it wise? Is it the wisest? Is it best? Is it wise? And again, wisdom is applying biblical knowledge, but we can ask God for wisdom. So, okay, the Bible's silent on this. We're invited to ask God for wisdom, to, to discover, is it wise? As a matter of fact, James 1.5 says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We can ask God for wisdom, and he will, but he also says we, we've got to believe that and not doubt. And then not only that can we ask God, but we can also check with mature believers that are in our life. That's wise counsel is what that's called in scripture. Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so sometimes we seek wise counsel from other believers that we know that they might have an insight that we don't have. And by the way, if you're married, this probably most often comes from your spouse. As a matter of fact, let me finish up on that other story. You know, the story about John eating the berries? You know, so I'm asking him, well, why'd you eat those berries? Here's what he said. He said, well, I remember being in the mountains before and seeing those same berries. And I remember grabbing them and having them. So I thought it's not gonna hurt me this time. But then he said this. Later, he realized Oh, but when I grabbed those berries before in the mountains a couple of years ago, I was with my wife, Patty. By the way, John and I both have godly wives. He was with his wife, Patty, and Patty saw him grab those berries, and she said, don't eat those. <laughs> and so he dropped them. But he forgot that part. He just remembered that he had them in his hand. So God... Is it wise? Hey, ask God, but also 
Seek out counsel of mature believers. And then that brings us to the fourth letter, D, and that is decide with freedom. Go to God's word. Remember biblical principles as guided by the spirit. Ask, is it wise? And then last, decide with freedom. God gives us freedom. What gives us freedom is doing what God says and then knowing we have freedom in everything else, then our freedom doesn't cost us a shipwrecked life. That's when we're really free because God's told us what we need to know and once we got that down, we can follow him. Once we check our own spirit and God's spirit within us, then we can move forward. Once we know that the wise people around us, hey, hey they're good, we can go and decide with freedom and enjoy it knowing that we're not gonna have regrets like we would if we went against God's will. That's what God offers us. That's what God wants for us. And by the way, people in our country need to make decisions. People need to learn how to make decisions this way. Follow God in decisions. Our whole country's making decisions, right? There's an election coming up, right? Hey, time to register to vote so you can be a part because that's what, a week from Tuesday we have an election. Big decisions in our country. You should be a part of that as God's people. So that's God's will for our lives. One last thing. Some people would ask, okay, that's all fine and good, but what if... I've already made bad decisions, so I'm outside of God's moral will, I'm over here somewhere, and these decisions still have ramifications in my life that I cannot undo. So how do I, who have made bad decisions that turned out were against what God would say, and now I find myself outside of God's will, and that's a continuing situation, how do I get back in, what do I do then? Is that a good question? For some of you it is. We'll talk about that next Sunday. All right, let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. Lord, you, you love us so much. You just bless and bless and bless and bless us and we deserve none of it. And the biggest blessing is the gift of your son. And so, Father, we pray as a church family right here that everyone here would reconsider, would ponder, would think about the, the offer that you give to all of us, the offer of forgiveness that's only available when we put all of our trust in Jesus for our salvation. And Lord, knowing there's some here that don't know that, God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, help them to see, help them to come to you. And Father, for the rest of us who've already done that, Lord, help us to make decisions that honor you by following your word and your principles. In Christ's name we pray, amen.